come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. episode number 96 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always i'm your tour guide here of david garrett jr recording out of columbus ohio and on this episode here i'm going to get back onto the odyssey through the ones as it's going to be number 22 there as i have featured reviews of bride of the gorilla from 1951 and i've got that paired up with jacob's wife from here in 2021 as this kind of seemed like an interesting double feature of, you know, playing on the whole title here of Bride and Wife, as well as we have some interesting films about curses that I think make for an intriguing enough double feature. Also on this episode, I have some mini reviews of Twins of Evil, What We Do in the Shadows, The Editor, and The Guest. I don't really think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here for this intro, but I am going to go ahead and get us over to my monthly review. For my monthly review here for August, I have 42 total films watched, 38 of them are horror films, 6 of them are 2021 releases, and the percentage of horror that I watched during the month is 90.48%. So the horror movies that I got to watch were Horror of Dracula, Old Mother Riley's Ghosts, A Ghost Waits, Absentia, Taste of Blood of Dracula, The Innkeepers, Toolbox Murders, now that is the remake, Fried Berry, The Thing from Another World, that would be the original. Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter, Pieces of Talent, The Revenge of Frankenstein, The Driller Killer, A Dark Song, Don't Breathe, Sightseers, Don't Breathe 2, The Curse of Frankenstein, Man from Planet X, The Night House, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, Barbarian Sound Studio, John Dies at the End, The Mummy from 59, Vicious Fun, Sinister, The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, The Strange Door, Candyman, Excision, Maniac, Would You Rather, the Vampire Lovers, Resolution, Bride of the Gorilla, Twins of Evil, Jacob's Wife, and then The Candyman here from 2021, the last film that I watched. Ten countries are represented. I have the United States, United Kingdom, South Africa, Ireland, Hungary, Serbia, Germany, Australia, France, and Canada. 
So of the 2021 watches, A Ghost Waits, Fried Berry, Don't Breathe 2, The Night House, Jacob's Wife, and Candyman, giving me six of them I'm in the month, as I said. The oldest watch I had was Old Mother Riley's Ghost from 1941, being the last one from that year. My average year is 1993. My highest rated are A Dark Song, Sinister, and Candyman, all at nines. My lowest rated was Old Mother Riley's Ghost at 4.5. The average rating is 7.5. Now, not on this feed, as I said, is a Toolbox Murders is for Movie Club Challenge over on the podcast Under the Stairs. The Driller Killer was on this feed, but it was part of SideQuest Podcast. And then both Candyman movies, as I have, you know, the original as well as this one here from 2021, are going to be featured on a bonus episode that will come out later this week. So then for my yearly totals, I've watched 41 2021 watches. 230 of them are horror films. And then my total films are 288. My average year is 1997, average rating 7.5, and the percentage for this year is a 79.86. That's all I really have now for that monthly review, as well as everything for this intro. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a very brief break before I get into those mini reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. And for my first mini review this week is going to be Twins of Evil. This is directed by John Hogue. This is written by Tudor Gates, who did the screenplay, and it's based on characters created by Sheridan Lee Fanu. This stars Peter Cushing, along with Madeline and Mary Collinson. This is a horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a religious sect led by Gustav Weil. Hunts all women suspected of witchcraft, killing a number of innocent victims. Gustav's niece gets herself involved with a devilish cult as well. This is another movie from Hammer that I didn't know was from them at first. I wasn't fully sure of what this movie was about either. It is interesting to find out that this is a sequel to The Vampire Lovers, which is another recent first time watch for me. Now, I know there's a movie in the middle of it. I believe it's Lust for a Vampire that I have not seen, but I do plan on seeking it out now as I do enjoy both of these. Sorry to play my hand there a little bit early. But where I want to start is that this is an interesting sequel. I didn't realize at first that, you know, like I said, this is what it was. Much like many of the Hammer sequels, you can watch them out of order and it doesn't necessarily hurt the enjoyment. I just think there's a little bit deeper story there that I might be missing out on, you know, by having not seen that middle one. Now, since I haven't read the novel either, I don't know how much they're pulling from it. This feels like it could have been a screenplay for something else that they just incorporated Carmilla into, because that's the name of the book that Lefanu did. I don't hate it, though. It works better than some sequels that, you know, try to just kind of shoehorn some ideas in. So, now we have this family of the Karsteins. Now, that's a family name that we are following. I should be curious to see the movie in the middle of this, just to kind of see what there might have been, you know, with them, and to see if it kind of explains some of the things that happens at the end of The Vampire Lovers. Now, currently I have some issues, though, as they were supposedly wiped out in the first movie. With what happens to the villain here, they should be completely gone again, you know, because of that. Now, since I don't have the information from the bridging movie, I'm at a bit of a loss there. What I do like is that Count Karstein is tired of the things he is doing. All that is left is to go darker. That is how he decides to perform a ritual that will call the spirit of Countess Mirkala. How that works makes sense to me and how it corrupts him makes sense as well i like that they're even getting a different type of vampire here they can go into the sunlight and it's only by decapitation or stake to the heart that kills them 
The movie establishes the lore here, and that works for me. Now, to get to the title here of the movie, it adds an extra level that comes with it. It is showcasing the twin stars of Madeline and Mary Collinson. They're both attractive, but from what I find interesting is how different they play their roles. We have Frida, who is wild. She's interested in the lusts of the flesh and being wild. It doesn't help that Gustav is strict, so she's kind of acting out a bit there. But we also have Maria, who is pure. What makes this great is that it's hard to tell them apart. It only seems to be Katie, who is the aunt, and Anton can tell, like, who's who. And that makes for tension that works for me, you know, as the climax builds. I'd say that both Collisons do well in their parts. Now, the one last thing for the story that I want to go into would be the Brotherhood. This movie does something interesting here by blurring the lines between the group and Karsteins. Now, this Brotherhood is witch hunting. They have a good chance that they're killing innocent people. I like that the movie is painting them as a religious zealots. They aren't that much better than the villains here. They do have a redemption of sorts there, so that should be pointed out, and I just think there should be a bit more punishment for them, in my opinion, as they are still kind of villains in somewhat. So I think next I should go to the acting. Since I've already said my piece in the Brotherhood, I'll say that Cushing is great as Gustav. I love that his last name, the way it's pronounced, sounds like vile, as that is what he is. It makes things happening to his niece for him to have a character turn which is good i've already said what i can about the twins and then we also have some other actors here like kathleen byron we have roy stewart luan peters damian thomas david warbeck all of them i think are all pretty solid here we also even have katya weth in a very kind of minor role I do like Thomas as our main villain, and I also enjoy Warbeck. Him being the expert on the vampire since he's interested in history, and lore is a solid way to work this in. I'd say that the acting in general here is well done. So the last thing to go into would be the effects, cinematography, and soundtrack. Now for the former, we don't get a lot of it until later in the movie. Being the era that this came out, they were done practical, and they look good to me. I think the blood has good color and consistency. The look of the vampires is solid. I don't have any issues there, and I'd say that the cinematography also helps to hide things. The soundtrack also fit for what was needed for the era. So that in conclusion, this is a solid movie. I'll even be honest. I think I like this one more than the first one in this little series here. The depth of the story is what really gets me. I think having the lines blurred of good and evil for the Brotherhood and the Karsteins adds an element. This is also, you know, giving us a duality between these twins who seem to have a deeper connection than just family. I like incorporating elements of Carmilla into this. The effects are solid as the cinematography and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. I would say that this is a good movie for me. This is one that I'd recommend if you like Hammer, any of the movies in the series here, or movies that are loosely adapting the novel. So my rating here for Twins of Evil is going to be an 8 out of 10. And I also got to watch this week What We Do in the Shadows. This is from 2014. This is written and directed by Jemaine Clement and Taki Watiti. And this also stars both of them, along with Corey gonzalez Mukur. This is a comedy horror film that is from New Zealand. This is currently sitting on a 7.7 on IMDb and a 4.1 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being, Vigo, Deacon, and Vladislav are vampires who are finding that modern life has them struggling with the mundane, like paying rent, keeping up with the chore wheel, and trying to get into nightclubs and overcoming flatmate conflicts so this is a movie that i originally didn't hear about until getting into podcasts once i did though this popped up quite a bit 
even though I try not to get sucked into the hype of some things, most everyone I listen to states how good of a horror comedy this is. And a, you know, solid mockumentary found footage film. Regardless, I gave this a watch as part of the Summer Challenge series. So, this movie doesn't have the deepest story, but what it does make up for is a deep knowledge of the vampire genre and how funny these actors are. I'll be honest, I was laughing by myself while watching this movie. The references to movies and literature along with the situations I've encountered as an adult mesh so well together. The attention to detail is also good with having images, paintings, and drawings made to match these vampires are wonderful as well. Now going along with this, we have some excellent acting. We have Vigo, who is a vampire who is in his 300s. Vladislav and Peter are older than that. They come off as awkward since they aren't around people as much and I think that makes it even better. Without fully just coming out and saying it, I know that Viego is a hopeless romantic. You get that Vladislav is a vampire that has, you know, some freaky taste with things that he, you know, says here. You get that Deacon feels threatened by Nick when this younger vampire has turned. And Nick knows how to fit in better, so that also kind of helps there. Now, Deacon is no longer the cool vampire, and they all want to impress Stu, which is hilarious since he's a computer nerd. I can't mock him too much because I can see a bit of myself there as well. What I'm really trying to say here is Clement, Watiti, Johnny Brug, Stu Rutherford, Ben Frosham are all great. Now since I've already gone into this group, I think the acting around them is good as well. We have like Jackie Van Beek is solid as this familiar who is a lot like the Renfield character. She will do whatever she can to be turned but she's getting fed up. I think that... Jason Hoyt as, is hilarious along with his crew as they're a group of werewolves. We also get like Elena Shjetko as Pauline. She has a funny bit herself. We have Karen O'Leary and Mike Minogue as cops who are, you know, hilarious as they have this encounter in the flat. And there's just a bunch of set pieces that work together. Now, actually, I realize I haven't necessarily dug into it yet. But we have like Vladislav is a lot like the Gary Oldman vampire from like that Dracula version. Viego is a lot like I would say Anne Rice's like Vampire Chronicles and much so more like Lewis from that. Then I would say that like Deacon is a lot like the Lost Boys. And then we have Nick who's just a person who has just been recently turned as well. And Pater is the Nosferatu type vampire. So getting back to kind of what I was saying is I think the impressive is the different looks of these vampires. I've seen pure horror films with vampires that don't look as good. Seeing how they look and act, I can pinpoint to what each one is being referenced here. There are some over-the-top blood spray, but this is a comedy. I can be forgiving there. The blood does look good. There's also some rooms that have the aftermath attacks that also look good. Being that this found footage is helpful, it can hide things, and I like the sense of realism we get from the cinematography there. This is another positive aspect to the film for me. So I believe that's the extent of what I'm going to go into here. And so in conclusion, this is a fun movie. I'm glad that I can finally tick this off my list of ones to see. There are some great characters here with Vladislav, Viago, Deacon, and the likes. It is fun to see these different vampires living together and taking on the mundane. The acting makes them come to life and bring their own brand of comedy. What effects we get look good and the cinematography also hides what they need. The soundtrack also is good, being mostly ambient noise. What isn't are songs that are added in post-production, which makes a lot of sense you know, for a documentary. I think this is a good movie and one that I would recommend to vampire fans. I'd also recommend this to horror and non-horror fans alike to check this one out. So my rating here for what we do in the shadows is going to be an 8 out of 10. Then I also got to watch this week is The Editor from 2014. This was directed 
between Adam Brooks and Matthew Kennedy, who also helped come up with the story and co-wrote this with Connor Sweeney. This stars Paz de la Huerta, Brooks and Kennedy as well. This is a comedy, crime, horror, mystery, thriller film that is from Canada. It is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a film editor gets embroiled in a string of murders. So this is a movie that I had heard of but didn't necessarily know what it was all about. Now it appeared on the Summer Challenge series from the podcast Under the Stairs, so it gave me a good idea recently of what it was going to be since they just covered it for that episode, and I've heard, you know, that one in its entirety. I'm actually glad that I held off seeing this, as this is kind of a parody, as well as like an homage film to Giallo, and you know, ones from the past of that type of subgenre that they really don't do a whole lot anymore, unless you're kind of getting, you know, more modern ones who are doing, paying honor back to that series of type of films. What I would need to start off with is that this is a comedy. They are taking what they did in Gialli and playing it with a comedic twist. I would say that this is being done in more of a homage way, as I was saying, though. There is still a coherent enough story that I could follow. And now, of the Jolly that I've seen, this one, I would actually put it in the middle of the road, just for the story-wise, since there's some of the lesser ones that have a more disjointed way of telling their tale. And many of them have a reveal at the end that doesn't always make the most sense. I thought the ending to this one at least fit for the story that we were getting. And then the last thing here is that I didn't figure out who the killer was, but looking back, it does make sense once I figure it out. Now, what I want to dive into next would be the references that they're making here. A host on the Summer Series stated that they haven't seen a lot of Jelly, but they are versed in some. This movie has so many references that the more you see, the more that I think you can appreciate it. I saw references to Suspiria, which isn't a Giallo, but it does build the story like one does. There also seems to be references here to the strange vice of Mrs. Ward. The Beyond, The House by the Cemetery, and The New York Ripper. Now, not all of these I've mentioned are actually Giallo films, but they are Italian. The use of nightmare logic you would get with like a Lucio Fulci film is definitely here. Now, where I think I should go next would be the effect cinematography and the soundtrack. This is where we're really getting that feel of Giallo. The cinematography is amazing in this movie. I also think the use of filters and the lights gives it that vibe as well. The soundtrack is on point, and according to some of the opening credits, they are actually taking actual songs from Gialli, which adds another layer to me. They are also overdubbing the actors, while you like which you would get in the original type ones. Being the reason there is that not everyone on the cast would speak Italian, but I think it's even better here is that some people's dubbing is better than others, which is what I've seen in some of the ones that I've watched. Now, what I can't gloss over are the effects. They are on point. The blood looks good, as does the gore. Overall, I was quite impressed with everything in these categories here. I think the last thing I would like to go into here would be the acting. It is interesting that Brooks and Kennedy are the co-writers and co-directors of this movie as well as its stars. I have to give them credit for knowing what they're doing here and then taking on the leads. Brooks feels like this guy that is down on his luck due to events of his life as Ray, our main character here as the editor. Where we also then have Kennedy here who's a hard investigator trying to get to the bottom of what is happening. It is funny that they're a bit bumbling and trying to cover up evidence later. I like Samantha Hill as Bella. We get a fun cameos here from Udo Kier, Lawrence R. Harvey, and Jerry Wasserman. I'd say that outside of them, we also have some good performances here by Connor Sweeney. We also get something here from Brett Donahue, Tristan Risk, Sheila Campbell. And then the rest of the cast is kind of just rounding this out for what was needed. So in conclusion here, this is a fun movie. 
If you are a fan of Giallo films and versed well enough, I think you'll have fun picking out the tropes along with the references. What is interesting here is that we get a decent enough Gialli despite what they're doing. The acting fits for what they need, the cinematography and lighting is on point, and the soundtrack is as well. One of the best parts are the deaths and how good the effects there look. I would say that this is a comedy that holds it back just a bit. For me though, this is a movie that's above average. If what I said here works for you, then I'd definitely give this a watch. So my rating here for the editor is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. And the last mini review I have for you here for this week is going to be The Guest. This is from 2014. Directed by Adam Wingard. Written by Simon Barrett. Stars Dan Stevens, Sheila Kelly, and Micah Monroe. This is a action mystery thriller film that is a co-production between the United States and United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a... 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a soldier introduced himself to the Peterson family, claiming to be a friend of their son who died in action after the young man is welcomed into their home. A series of accidental deaths seem to be connected to his presence. So I'll be honest here, I didn't know a lot about this movie. I feel like I heard people talking about it on podcasts, but that might not necessarily be the case either though. This movie is one that I think is fringe horror, but it's done by Wingard and Barrett, who have done quite a bit in the genre. So I do think this movie does kind of fall here as a borderline movie for sure. Now where I want to begin is our villain here of our movie of David, who is portrayed by Stevens. I like how we get introduced to him. He is coming to pay his respects to this family. Now as a viewer, we have a, an idea of where this movie is going to go, and I'm already trying to size him up. If I'm looking at it just as, you know, what we're getting, it is a great thing. It seems upstanding and a respectable guy. He uses terms that make him seem genuine. What I think works great for his character are the subtle changes. We hear weird things happening, but we don't know if he's doing it. The movie slowly ramps up to steadily showing how crazy he is. I think that Stevens does well in disarming this family and then terrifying them. The family's where I want to go next. They are interesting is that they feel fairly normal. They're in a bad spot losing to their son in the military. The parents of Laura and Spencer have lost their way. To be honest, if David doesn't show up, they're probably primed for a divorce. Then we have Anna as this waitress who doesn't have much drive to do anything else. Luke has bullies to deal with, but I think if he gets out of town, I think he could make something of himself. The area feels like a lot like where I grew up. It is small and backwoods where the military is one of the major options to get out. So I would end up saying here that Monroe, Kelly, we also get... Leland Orser as the father and then Brandon Meyer. I think all of them are all solid in their roles. Now what I have been avoiding here is going into the truth behind the character of David. I don't want to spoil things but the government is involved. We've seen movies like this so this isn't doing anything necessarily new. I do wish they would have showed a bit more on screen of some of the mayhem he's causing. We do get a lot of that at the climax but earlier on I think there's a little bit more that I think they could have done. There are quite a few of these things where I'm like well did David actually do this then? This isn't truly a horror film, so that's also why, and it's also directed more towards a mainstream audience. I could say this falls into a fringe slasher film once he snaps. I like that we have Major Carver, who's portrayed by Lance Reddick, as he's an actor that I like playing in these type of roles. I think I've delved enough into the story, so I'll shift over to the effects and cinematography. I've already said that I wish they did more on screen. Since this movie is geared more towards a wider audience, I get why we don't. What effects we do get look fine. I'll actually give credit here to Stevens. When he gets hurt, he shows the effects and not him just being an indestructible soldier. The cinematography is used well enough here to help hide some things as well. So the last thing I want to delve into here would be the rest of the cast. Now, we do have 
Tabitha Sean, who gets to play this character of Kristen. She's attractive and a bit naive, being blinded with how good-looking David is. I like seeing cameos here by Chase Williamson, Joel David Moore, and Ethan Embry. I'd say the rest of the cast is really solid and what is needed for rounding this out. So then in conclusion here, I think this is a solid movie. It is an interesting one to make since at the time of this was in the thick of the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. Soldiers are were both being vilified for heinous acts being done as well as being celebrated when they were coming home. This movie is taking David, who seems nice, but is truly a monster. I like the subtle approach to making us wonder if he's involved with some of these things or not. The movie isn't necessarily horror, but I think that it does enough for some of the elements, but also keep that in mind. We are getting more of an action mystery thriller film here, and I'd say that this is still worth a viewing, especially since we have a solid cast. I would say that this movie is above average for me, just lacking some elements for me to go higher. So my rating here for the guests is going to be a 7 out of 10. Like I said, that's all I'm going to do for mini reviews here for this week, so I'm going to get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. of the Gorilla with Barbara Payton, Lon Chaney, Raymond Burr, and Tom Conway. The dramatic story of a strange curse that brought terror to a man and frenzy to a woman in love. Don't go away. You do love me, don't you? That's all I need to know. Well, you're standing in my way, and Dina's. We love each other. What are you going to do about it? Did you see this animal? Yes, I have seen the animal. It walks in his hind legs. Like a man? No, like a beast that walks like a man. Oh, let's go back, Bonnie, please. I'll never go back. Never. Stop. Go on. Why don't you shoot? You can't miss. My first featured review on this episode is going to be Bride of the Gorilla. This is from 1951. This is written and directed by Kurt Sadamak. This stars Barbara Payton, Lon Chaney Jr., and Raymond Burr, while also featuring Tom Conway, Paul Kavanaugh, Gisela Virbeska, Carol Varga, Paul Maxey, Woody Strode, Martin Galarraga, Philippa Rock, Monia McGill, Steve Culvert, Art Felix, Augie Gomez, and Tony Urchel. This is a horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.4 on IMDb and a 2.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being the owner of a plantation in the jungle marries a beautiful woman. Shortly afterward, he is plagued by a strange voodoo curse that transforms him into a gorilla. And I will have more to delve into that here shortly. 
But this is a movie that I'll be honest, I had never heard of. It popped up on a list of movies from 1951. What caught my attention was that it was written and directed by Sodomac, who did a lot of Universal classics, which I'll also get into here shortly. Another thing was that it starred Lon Chaney Jr. and Raymond Burr. So I decided to review it as part of my Odyssey Through the Ones here. So then before I actually get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes. Now, Sodomac didn't do a lot of directing. This is surprising to me, actually. He only has six credits. This was actually his first. And of the movies, only two of them are actually considered to be horror. But the first one is this here. And then he also did Tales of Frankenstein from 1958. And this is the only one that I've seen him as a director. Then as a writer, though, he had 47 credits. He started back in 1929. Of his movies, I've seen 14. He wrote things like The Invisible Man Returns, Black Friday, The Wolfman, and some other, like I said, universal classics. Now, his last was Doom of Dracula from 66. Now, he is also credited with The Wolfman from 2010. I'm assuming that's probably an earlier screenplay. Then we have our actors here. The first one I'll look at is Peyton, who had a short career compared to her co-stars with only 12 movies. This is the only one in horror and the only one that I've seen. Then we have Chaney, who had a whopping 157 credits. I'm shocked that I've only seen 13 of them. 37, though, are horror. I've seen his first in genre with 1 million BC, which was for this podcast. Then another one I did on the podcast here was Man-Made Monster. And then I've also, you know, recently gave a rewatch to The Wolfman. It appears that his last feature was in 1971 with Dracula vs. Frankenstein, which I have yet to see. Then we also have Burr. He had a solid career with 113 movies. I've seen four of them. And then of those movies that he has been in, four are also in horror. This is his first. He was also in Gorilla at Large in 1954. I've seen him in Godzilla King of the Monsters. Now this is, you know, taking the original Gohira and making it into the Godzilla movie with the scenes of him being kind of edited in there. Now his last was in 1980 with the curse of King Tukunahaman's tomb. I've also recently watched him in Rear Window, and I've also seen Godzilla 1985 as well, which is another movie that featured him. So we start this movie off with some voiceover narration from Police Commissioner Taro, who is Cheney. This is shown over animal footage from the jungle before shifting over to a house that looks pretty decrepit. But it's a plantation-type house that's more of like a ranch style just because of where it's located. Now he is relaying how the jungle can be unforgiving and we see the scenes that will lead to the house of you know being in the state that it currently is and we go into the past. This plantation is owned by Klaus Van Gelder. This is portrayed by Kavanaugh. He is married to Dina who is Peyton. Now they seem relatively happy but for whatever reason Klaus is neglecting his wife. He is best friends with Dr. Viet who is portrayed by Conway. He believes that the two of them should leave this place because it's not good for you know, a marriage, and especially for a woman who isn't necessarily used to this rough type of terrain. Now, Dina is a former dancer before marrying and moving here. Dr. Viet believes that the heat and how difficult it is to live will ruin them, as I was saying. Now, running this plantation is a manager of Barney Chavez, portrayed by Burr. He has trouble keeping employees with how difficult it is to work there. This causes Kloss and him to butt heads. It doesn't help the fact that Dina feels strongly for Barney, and he feels the same back to her. Now, after a dispute at dinner, Klaus fires Barney. Dina tells her love that he cannot leave. She wants him to work things out with Klaus. The two of them meet in the garden, and it doesn't go well. Klaus punches Barney, and then he hits him back. This causes the older man to fall with a snake slithering toward him. He cannot get up, though, and ends up being bitten. Hiding in the trees is Al Long, who is portrayed by Verbisic. Now, she's a local woman who works on the plantation. 
her niece is Larina, who was portrayed by Varga, who was seeing Barney, but he recently just ended it, and it broke her heart. And now El Long is out for revenge. Taro investigates the death, and he believes that Barney was involved. There isn't any evidence to prove this, though. When asked, El Long denies seeing him, and she confirms that she saw Klaus get bitten by a snake. What kind of complicates things, though, is there were leaves from a forbidden plant that were found on the eyes of Klaus. El Long denies having one like that, and since it is illegal to own, Taro doesn't believe her and has her room searched. Now, she has her secrets and will use them to get back at Barney for the deeds that he has committed. So that's when we leave my recap of this movie. Where I want to start, though, with breaking this down is when I saw the title, I immediately wondered if this was going to be one of the racist takes on the gorilla film. Thankfully, that was not what we're getting here. This was a bit of trivia that I ended up finding, but it sounds like the writer-director of Sodomac took aspects from the Wolfman screenplay that didn't make it into the movie to build this story here, and I can see that having now watched this movie and, you know, what they're dealing with with a curse and everything here. Going along with this idea, we do have another curse movie that is featuring Chaney. Something else that I saw was that the hiring of him along with Burr, the actors were thought to be interchangeable for the roles. It worked better in their eyes to give the lesser role to Chaney, of Taro, which I thought was a good fit, but it also seemed like he might have been deteriorating due to alcoholism, which is kind of sad. Burr had a better look at the time to be the more rugged Barney. The casting of these roles is good, I think, and I'm also thinking that the writing as Taro has some awkward lines and how Chaney delivers them doesn't help. I can't fully blame him, though, here either, because, you know, I think part of it is due to the writing. This curse is an interesting one. El Long doesn't like that Barney shunned her daughter and then allowing Kloss to die. She takes matters into her own hands. We get an interesting scene here where a policeman by the name of Nito, who's portrayed by Strode, finds this plant that Taro was looking for, but because it's thought to be evil, he lets her keep it because if he takes it, it could curse him. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, though. Because, I mean, he could have probably burned it or something along those lines, but, I mean, I get being superstitious like some of these people are. This isn't my only issue here, though, either. The setting of the movie is also confusing. We are in the jungle. Gorillas are indigenous to Africa. I believe this movie takes place in South or Central America. Having names like Chavez along with the use of voodoo makes me think that is located in this, you know, region. Having a gorilla walking around in the jungles of South America doesn't make sense since they don't reside there. There was some trivia that I end up also finding here that the idea came from mythology and it actually isn't a gorilla but more of a Bigfoot-like creature called Sukara, which is supposed to be kind of like a demon that roams these type of woods. I don't like to be rude, but it does seem like the title is a lazy thing to do since people would identify what we're getting here as an ape-like creature as a gorilla, but like I said, it doesn't make sense unless they're playing on the fact that people in 1951 might not realize this is the case, unless you're like a zookeeper or a zoologist or something along those lines. That should be enough for the story though, so I'll go to the acting. Peyton is our lead here of Dina. I think she's fine. I did see that some people didn't like her promiscuous nature. I'm not a fan that she is thinking of cheating on her husband. The movie has a short runtime, so they can't necessarily flesh some things out. It doesn't look good on her part to marry Barney as quickly as she does in the movie, but since she's being neglected, I can see her moving on quickly since she probably has fallen out of love with her husband. She also seems to be the most beautiful woman in this area, so I can see why everyone falls in love with her. Chaney and Burr are both fine, as I've said. For the former, I have issues with how things are written more than necessarily his delivery. Conway, Kavanaugh, Verbisak, and Varga are all solid. I'd say the cast overall is fine, but no one is great. I did want to give credit to Steve Calvert, who is the gorilla in this movie, because I think he works well in the costume. 
But then as for the facts, we don't get a lot of them either. This isn't necessarily a movie that needs them. We don't have the largest budget, but I do like the look of the gorilla. It also seems realistic, for sure. I should also give credit here to the cinematography, as they are able to hide it. There is also some animal footage here that is edited in. It feels like filler, but I also think that it establishes where it takes place. On the whole, this is fine without necessarily standing out to me. And then one last thing I realize that I want to circle back to for the story is that there's actually a good possibility here that Barney might not actually be changing. Now, nobody actually ever sees this creature. Now, he is being poisoned by El Long, so it could also be in his head, which I think is kind of an interesting thing here. And this is definitely something that falls into, you know, where is this mental illness? Is this him hallucinating? I think that's something that they should have played up just a slightly bit more, but I like that it is incorporated in here. And I'm going to do a bit of trivia before I wrap this up, but during filming, Peyton's husband of Frenchot Tone had a private detective spy on her trying to catch her cheating on him. He managed to take pictures of her and Woody Strode in bed together. This is kind of an interesting little thing to have here just because of the fact that she's cheating in this movie. Edward G. Robinson Jr. was originally cast, but was fired by producers following an arrest for writing a bad check for $138 to a Laguna Beach garage. Burr reportedly took an immediate dislike to Cheney, according to Cheney's biographer of Don Smith. This movie was shot in seven days. Sodomac, as I said, considered interchanging Burr with Cheney, but because of Cheney's interior looks, the idea was dropped. Partially based on ideas from Sodomac's original script for The Wolfman. Although it took seven days to shoot the movie, Cheney was scheduled to go on a 10-day publicity tour on behalf of the film, which eventually grew to four and a half months, according to Smith as well. Burr and Cheney would reunite in Casanova's Big Night and Passion. Cheney and Peyton had earlier in the same year appeared in Only the Valiant. First time Burr was in a movie with a grill in the title. A few years later, he'd be in Gorilla at Large. There was also a Perry Mason episode that has a gorilla on the loose. This is the first movie lampooned on Mystery Science Theater show Incognito Cinema Warriors XP in 2008. The film was greatly ridiculed by the characters who made light of the overly dark scenes taking place in the jungle, as well as the promiscuous nature of Peyton's character. And then in the 2015 book, Scripts from the Crypt, Bride of the Gorilla contains a script of a movie, the story of its production, chapters on the music, its distribution, the last years of Sadamak, and contributors include Tom Weaver, David Schlechter, Gregory W. Mack, Robert J. Kiss, and Scott McQueen. So in conclusion here, this movie is, has an interesting idea. We have this older woman who's upset and using voodoo to punish this man. It even works having Taro, who grew up in the area, but is educated outside of it. The lore works, but it is confusing as to where the movie takes place. I know this could be an issue of semantics, but calling this creature a gorilla annoys me. The story is lacking a bit. The acting is fine, and I feel like the writing doesn't necessarily help. Aside from the effects, the cinematography and soundtrack are also good. For that, this movie is over average, but I can't go much higher than that. So my rating here for Bride of the Gorilla is going to be a 6 out of 10. I'm not going to do a spoiler section if you couldn't tell, just because I don't feel like there's enough here that I can really necessarily need to delve into anymore. So I'm going to get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You make plans for things. Life happens. I want to live a bigger life. You know, Anne, I am surprised that you wound up marrying Jacob. Whatever happened to the adventurous Anne? Oh, this is so tempting. I just can't do it to Jacob. 
That's odd. You've got new teeth coming in. What? And Oh, good, you're home. Get changed. I'd like to go out. 40 years I've known this woman. Every day the same. Now, I don't know who I'm coming home to. How much of that could I get? You want the blood? I feel more alive than I have in years. Hey, Mrs. Fetter, you all right? Mrs. Fetter? Why didn't you tell me when this first happened? I felt ashamed. As you should. Husbands, love your wife. He who loves his wife loves himself. So That looks heavy. I want to make my own decisions from now on. You ever see something you couldn't explain, Sheriff? <laughs> you don't know how to fight for me because you've never done it. Give me the strength to save her soul! We need to finish this! You gonna write this one up, deputy? Domestic dispute? Nonviolent? And for my second featured review on this episode is gonna be Jacob's Wife. This is from 2021. This was directed by Travis Stevens, who also helped co-write this with Kathy Charles, Mark Steensland. This stars Barbara Crampton, Larry Fezzedin, and Bonnie Ahrens, while also having Naisha Bell, Sarah Lind, Mark Kelly, Robert Russler, J. Devon Johnson, CM Punk, Omar Salazar, Angelise Simone, Ned Yosef, Giovanni Cruz, Armani Desiree, Monica L. Henry, Skeeta Jenkins, Kathy Newcomb, and Morgan Peter Brown. This is a horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.4 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, Anne, married to a small town minister, feels her life has been shrinking over the past 30 years. Encountering the master brings her a new sense of power and an appetite to live bolder. However, the change comes with a heavy body count. So this is a movie that I heard some buzz about due to social media. Now, I'm a fan of Barbara Crampton, so this movie was on my radar when I saw that she was starring in this. It helped even more when I saw the poster for the movie and seeing that it also was co-starring with, you know, Larry Fessenden. I tried seeing this earlier in the year, but it wasn't available at the time, so I am now as part of this segment here for the podcast. So then before I get into the movie itself, this director of Stevens has three credits in this role. All are in horror. The first was 2018 with Better Off Zed, which I've never heard of. From there, he did Girl on the Third Floor, which I have seen and enjoyed before, you know, seeing this movie here. As a writer, he has four credits. I've seen all three of his horror films with Summer's Moon, Girl on the Third Floor, and then this one here. The only other one that he did, I believe, is a sci-fi channel movie called Metal Tornado. Then there is Kathy Charles, who has two writing credits. Her first was working with our star here of Crampton on the Castle Freak remake, which I haven't seen as of yet before doing this movie here. This is the first credit for Steenland as a writer. And then on to our actors. The first is a legend, in my opinion, with Crampton. I have a big crush on her. She has 57 acting credits, 34 in horror, with me seeing 15. Her first that I have seen was Body Double, where she has kind of a smaller cameo role in the beginning. Her first in genre was Reanimator, which is a classic. I've seen her in things like Chopping Mall, From Beyond, Puppet Master, and Castle Freak, the original one. 
where she did work with Full Moon a lot, you know, with a few of them there. Now, more recently, she was in Your Next, The Lords of Salem, We Are Still Here, and Into the Dark Culture Shock, just to name a few that I have seen her in. Then there is Fessenden. He's an actor that I didn't realize that I saw and knew who he was until the more I got into horror. And then it, you know, finally clicked. He has 73 films. Of them, I've seen 17. In horror, I've seen things like Habit, Session 9, Mulberry Street, Your Next, The Battery, and Jugface. Once again, just to name a few that I've seen him in. Then the last person I'll look at is Bonnie Ahrens. She has 22 acting credits, of which I've seen 9. Now, some of the non-horror ones is Mulholland Drive, which is kind of borderline there. I've seen Shallow Hell and The Silver Linings Playbook. In genre, though, I've seen her in her first was Drag Me to Hell. I've seen her in The Conjuring 2, Annabelle Creation, The Nun, and now this. Now, I do know a couple of those. She has more of like a cameo role in it, but it is what it is. The only one that I'm really kind of missing is Dahmer vs. Gacy, I Live Alone, and The Nun 2, which is not technically out yet. I don't know why I said technically it's not out yet. So we start this movie seeing a rat on the pavement outside of a church. The minister here is Pastor Jacob Fetter, who is portrayed by Fessenden. His sermon is about honoring your wife, which in his case is Anne, who is portrayed by Crampton. Also in attendance is Jacob's brother of Bob, who is portrayed by Kelly, and his wife of Carol, who is portrayed by Lynn. After the sermon, we see how well Jacob and Anne know their congregation, which is pretty well. They speak with Amelia Humphreys, who is Belle, and inquire about her mother, who is not in attendance. She has relapsed into drinking, and it bothers her daughter. Jacob offers to come over the next day to visit with her, which makes Amelia happy. She then starts the long walk home. She gets all the way to her house before she's attacked by something, or someone. The next day, we get to know their, a bit more about this couple, though. Anne is reserved. Jacob expects her to cook and clean for him. He also talks over her quite a bit. She relays to him how she is going to meet with a former flame of hers by the name of Tom Lowell, who's portrayed by Rustler. Now, he's an architect, I think and he has been approved in town to renovate a closed mill. Jacob doesn't seem too thrilled about this idea as he likes things to be more simple and not really to change. Through her meeting with Tom, we learn that she used to be much more adventurous. She had big plans for her life. When her parents died, Jacob was there for her and they married soon after. Now, Tom has feelings for Anne still. They kiss and she tells him that this cannot happen. They happen upon some crates in the mill's basement. Tom opens one of them to find a few large rats in the other one, he finds quite a bit more. He ends up being attacked and killed during this sequence here. Something else comes up behind Anne. Now, this encounter changes her. She shows up late and goes into the bedroom. Jacob is nervous when she gets home because he's calling, like, some of her friends to find out where she's at. And then she goes to bed but never ends up coming to bed with him. And when he gets up the next morning, that's where he kind of starts to really kind of panic. There is no breakfast and he doesn't know what to do. Anne seems to have found her voice when she came home that day. And then when he comes home after work for, you know, the second day here, she is dressed in a red dress. She wants to go out. She doesn't have an appetite for food and drink, though. She thirsts for blood. Jacob doesn't believe it at first, but soon realizes there's something darker going on here. And his wife is not the woman he used to be married to. I feel like that expands the synopsis a bit more without going into spoilers. Where I want to start this off would be the basic premise here. We have a minister and his wife. I think that it is interesting to have her become a vampire. Anne is repressed by her husband. She has lost herself and, you know, became just his wife. It doesn't help that he has a bigger personality in the beginning than she does. I think that Crampton is a perfect actress to take on this role. She is able to hide behind her husband, but she also has enough personality to bust out as her character grows. 
What I also think here helps is the chemistry that Pheasanton and Crampton have together. Recently, I've seen these two in like We Are Still Here and Your Next, even though they don't share scenes together in that latter movie. He is an underrated actor, and they play so well off each other. There's also an interesting concept that develops here. Jacob is a man of God as a minister. He also becomes our vampire hunter. What complicates this, though, is that Anne is his wife. He wants to protect her out of love. This adds a level to the movie that I enjoy. Also, if you couldn't tell, I think Pheasanton does a good job as our male lead here. Now, what I want to go to next would be the master vampire and the lore with this. It is interesting that we're getting a Nosferatu-style vampire. I personally love the look as it's monstrous. I like that the master sex-wise is ambiguous. We would assume male as that is just more common for, you know, when we hear the term master. But Aaron's fits this role so well. Even more so, there could be a commentary that the master is a female. Regardless, Aaron's does a solid job in this minor but important role. She reminds me of Tilda Swinton, where the acting is so good since she can you know, be a chameleon for a sexless type role here. But I will say, I also kind of find it interesting that all the vampires in this movie, I believe, are all female, which is also kind of an interesting thing, where it seems to be pushing the concept of you know, women power type, I would say. But I do want to go next to the lore here, where I do have a slight issue. Anne is in the sun a lot in this movie, but it doesn't seem to affect her. We do get an interesting scene where UV light burns her. That makes sense with her changing into a vampire. The issue I have is that sunlight is also UV rays. Part of this is explained by something later in the movie, but I also think there's a little bit of an inconsistency here. Now for the last bit I want to go into story-wise is the setting. It is a small town. Jacob never grew up and out of the mindset. Anne wanted to, but got stuck. This feels a lot like Salem's Lot where a vampire attacks where it is easier to get away with it in a smaller town. There is even a line that maybe this vampire targets towns like this that, you know, have dying mills. I think this makes a lot of sense and it is spooky to think of towns that died if something like this could be the cause. It actually makes me feel like the area that I grew up in as well, to be honest. Now, my town is still alive, but not by much. Now, since I've covered a lot of the acting, I'll go to the rest of the cast. I think that Belle does a solid job in establishing her character. We also get to see her as a vampire later on, which I like. Now, we also have Lyndon Kelly are solid. They make for an interesting interaction later in the movie. Rustler is solid in his small role, along with Johnson as Sheriff Mike Hess. And then we also have an appearance by CM Punk as Deputy Colton. I would say the rest of the cast really rounds this movie out for what is needed. So then the last thing I want to go into would be the effects, cinematography, and soundtrack. I've already said that I like the look of the vampires. The blood is solid, but it does go a bit over the top at times, if I'm honest. There seems to be a bit of CGI here that I noticed. There wasn't enough to ruin anything, but I do think the cinematography does well in hiding things, so I will give credit to that. Finally, I'd say that the soundtrack was surprising. We get a feel of synth that you would get from movies from the 1980s that I enjoyed, and I was pleasantly surprised and it works for me. So before I close this out here, I have a little bit of trivia. So in addition to playing the titular character, Crampton is also one of the film's producers, having spent years shepherding the script to the screen. She said, I read it and it was immediately captivated. I hooked up with Bob Portal at Alliance Media Partners and it took many years for us to develop the project and put it together, which I think is kind of cool. Filmed in the same house as My Dog Skip from 2000. Had its world premiere at South by Southwest Film Festival on March 17, 2021. Sheriff Mike Hess likely takes his name from Ganja and Hess, another vampire movie with religious themes. So then, in conclusion here, I'm glad that I finally saw this movie as I enjoyed it. I think we have an interesting premise here of taking Anne, who has lost herself in being the preacher's wife, and finding herself becoming a monster and refinding all that. 
We get themes of perverting religion and vampires attacking a small town. The acting works well here. I'd say the effects can be a bit over the top, but for the most part, they're good. Cinematography helps, and the soundtrack fits the movie for what is needed. I'd say this is a good movie. My goal is to rewatch this one by the end of the year for sure. So my rating here for Jacob's Wife is going to be an 8 out of 10. Now, I'm not going to do a spoiler section, as I don't think a lot of people have seen this one yet. I would definitely recommend that. So what I will do is get you over to a very brief break before I close out the show. I would like to welcome you back one last time, and then just to close everything out here on episode number 96. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. You can send me any sort of feedback that you'd like over there to tell me what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as if you have anything that you'd like to have read on the show. Just go ahead and let me know there, like if you want to tell me what your thoughts are on any of the movies from this episode here. Now, if you'd like to read any of the reviews from this episode or any of the past episodes, that's horrorreview.webnode.com, and that is Reviews of the Dead is the name of my blog there. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Mishkin Garrett Jr. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, where I will be posting all of the reviews for anything that's horror and non-horror alike that I watch every, you know, whenever. That is David OSU. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, it's David OSU87. And then the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram is Journey with a Cinephile. Where over there I'll be posting all of the posters for any of the movies that I have reviewed. So that's where you can find all of that. And I will also have all of those links in the show notes to make it easier as well. And the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcasting device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. And the other thing would be that if you could go ahead and rate and review just so that way I can figure out what I'm doing that you don't like and what I'm doing that you do like, as well as to get to more listeners out there as well. So for the next episode here on episode number 97, I'm going to be doing another Odyssey Through the Ones as I'm going to be watching from 1951 a movie called The Medium. I end up finding a pretty cheap copy of that, so I'll be watching that as the older movie. And then for the new release here from 2021, I believe I'm going to be watching The Vigil. Now, I'm also going to try to get in as many mini-reviews on there as well, you know, per usual. But I think that's all I need to get you up to speed with here. So what I will say is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it. Have a great time out there. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr., and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 